Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is our doctrinal statement of faith. We are in chapter 3, and we just actually began chapter 3 uh, last two weeks ago. Last week I wasn't here. Paul uh, taught last week, which I appreciate. Um, and in fact, I do have outlines of the chapter. If anybody would like an outline that didn't get an outline from two weeks ago, I'd be happy to put one out here for you. But um, this is the chapter of God's decree. So just in the scheme of things... Um, you know, there is some, uh, certainly, there is some meaning in the order of the chapters in the Confession. Um, they actually mimic what was in the first London Baptist Confession, although there are more chapters now. Uh, the Westminster Confession, which followed the first London Baptist, um, used the, the first London Baptist as its uh, kind of starting place, and so they, they use those things as well. So if you think about it, we talked about first chapter was of the Scriptures, and so of the scriptures, now we're, we're you know, validating and talking about why we can trust the scriptures to be truthful and how we can know that it's God's word. So we did that in very long, many, many weeks, months with the scriptures. Then it's of God and the Holy Trinity. And then we, you know, that obviously now that we've defined where we can get truth about God in his word, then we go on to define who God is. And we talked about that in chapter two, who God is. What, uh, how does he operate? What does he need from us? Nothing, by the way. That's a little cheat there. Nothing. He needs nothing from us. He would still be God. He would still be complete. He would still be holy. He would still be righteous. He would still be everything he is without his creation. didn't need us at all. So we can't think, well, you know, if it wasn't for us, God wouldn't be. No, no, no. That's blasphemy. Don't go down that path. That's not true. So then we get to the next point, which is of God's decree, where we're at this chapter now. Because now we talk about, okay, who is God? And then what has he decreed? What is his plan? How has he ordained things to actually be conducted? This is going to continue as we work through uh, the chapters where you're going to see it basically building on the other chapters. Does that make sense? So we're basically going back and building on each of those chapters. We couldn't start with God's decree, right? We couldn't start with that. But by the way, was God's decree... Paul, you're answering yes, I didn't even ask a question. Was God's decree... First, yes, yes, Paul was right, he read my mind. Yes, God's decree was first before creation. So God decreed, we, see, we already saw some scripture that pointed this out uh, two weeks ago. God's decree came before he actually created the heavens and the earth. So we can't talk about creation before the decree because that's not an order, right? So did God exist before he made his decree? Yes, of course he did. He did exist. Did his word exist before his decree? Well, that's an interesting question. No, his word in the form that we have did not exist. But the truths of who God is did exist. They're eternal. Still existed. How about the plan of what was going to happen through history, of Christ coming, of Christ being the sacrifice? Did all of that happen before his decree? No, because his decree is what laid out what was going to happen. So... Part of the scriptures certainly were true from all eternity, but part of the scripture actually, of course, would not come out until after he had made his decree, and then those truths would be the case. It doesn't matter when it got written in a book, Christ was going to come to earth to be the sacrifice. Does that make sense? Doesn't, it was still true. It didn't matter when it actually got written. It mattered, but it didn't matter as far as it being true. And so we have to study these things in those orders. Does that make sense? That's, that's why we're doing it this way. All right, so 
as we're working through this chapter, uh, basically the first week we talked about the fact we were working on paragraph one. We're still in paragraph one. And uh, we talked about it's, it. Paragraph one um, is the general decree of all events. This kind of is the summary paragraph for the whole chapter. And then we started working on its universality. In other words, how it applies to everything on, in life. Now, this is a key doctrinal point for us. For us as, a, as, our, as our church, first of all, as Baptists, and then you could say as Reformed Baptists and as Christians, but let's, not, let's be clear here. This is not a Reformed Baptist doctrine. This is a Christian doctrine. Plenty of non-Reformed and non-Baptists believe this same doctrine, right? The Bible, by the way, is not a Reformed Baptist book. <laughs> right, can we agree with that? It's not it. It is this doctrine, when we talk about the universality of God's decree, is still true. It does still true. And the point is, is that it is really, really important to embrace it as it has to be the case that it is without trying to separate it into different pieces of pie, so to speak. Well, this, these events, these things that happen, God plans, like Christ coming, like the flood. Yeah, he planned those things. But these things are stuff that he just reacts to. And these things are stuff that man controls. And these things are stuff that's out of his control, but it's in control, and nature's in control of it, right? This is what people do. They split it up into our existence, into these pieces of pies that always take God out. There's never a case where they say they put God in, because God is in it all anyway. God is covering it. So we work through this section about its universality. We're actually pointing out how the Scriptures tell us very clearly that God does these things, that he planned these things, that they're in his control. They're not out of his control. They're not in man's control. They're not surprises that he reacted to. And this, of course, you know where this is going, probably, if you're thinking ahead already. Like Paul, he's probably thinking ahead. He just nods for me. Salvation. Salvation. So is it possible? You know, think about this in the scheme, big picture. Big picture. Is it possible that God is in control and has a plan for all things except salvation. He has no idea who's going to be saved. Well, no, it's not possible. And it's not possible, nor, by the way, would it be probable, but it's not possible because of what God's Word tells us specifically about how the process of salvation works and how someone actually feels convicted, how they feel guilty, how they feel compelled to repent, how they truly gain belief. All of those things happen when the Holy Spirit changes someone's heart from dead, makes them alive, quickens them, makes them alive, turns it from stone to flesh. You cannot turn your own heart from stone to flesh. No more than a dead person can revive themselves. Can't happen. So is it possible that somehow... A dead person can revive themselves and God can't stop it and he can't make it happen. It's impossible. It's not possible. Now those basic, I mean, this sounds really, you know, I'm explaining it and saying it in a way that sounds very obvious, like this has to be the way it is, right? But there are very learned biblical scholars who differ on this, right? And not that I would tell you to listen to any of them, but... It's true. They don't all hold the same. Some, of course, they believe in the free will extends to beyond God's control. Now, by the way, do we believe in free will? Ooh, here's a question. Do we believe in free will? 
Yeah, you could look at Paul. Yes, he's saying yes, yes. <laughs> Paul, I got you today. Yes, yes, we do believe in free will. But we don't believe that free will overrides God's will. Hmm. That's interesting. How's that work? I'm glad you asked. You have to stay tuned, and we'll get to that eventually. <laughs> Not today. All right, so we started working through um, these different acts or classes of events that are in God's control. And in fact, um, this is where we started. We actually got down to the bottom point there, but this is where we started. We started with, first of all, good and evil events. So both good and evil, God has planned for and has made happen. We saw that in those verses, many, many more verses than that. In fact, there's a lot of overlap with some of the other other categories we're going to see here. You'll recognize that some of these things, they kind of overlap, because certainly if you classify good and evil, Everything kind of falls into good and evil, right? So that, there's some overlap there. Then we talked about sinful acts, and sinful acts about uh, how God planned these things and used these things and intended these things to happen. Wow, how's that work out? Well, I'm glad you asked. We will get to that today. Not yet. All right, so now next we're getting to, we're at free acts of men. Okay, wait a minute. You hear what I'm saying right there, right? So God's decree applies to free acts of men. Free acts of men. Let's see them. First of all, Proverbs 16.1. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. That's enough. We don't have to have the other references. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The Lord is the one that prepares man's heart. The Lord is the one that gives him the words to speak. Proverbs 16, 9. A man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. The Lord directeth his steps. How, what, what does that mean? If man devises the way in his heart, but the Lord directs his steps, you know what that means? Man's not directing his steps. Can you see this? Just look at the opposite. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Does that mean that the king is in control or God? This is hard to swallow, right? This verse right here, (laughs) this is not the one you want to be remembering when you see the news. Because you realize that all the bad stuff that's happening, God's causing that to happen. God's in control. He is turning the heart of the king whichever way he wants to. He's making him do the things that he wants him to do. Is the king over God? (laughs) Ask Nebuchadnezzar. He'd have an opinion on that. In fact, he gave us an opinion on that. I think we read some of it last week, but we might read some today. All right, Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. How can all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose if it wasn't for his purpose? So this is a common verse for someone who actually wants to come give you the idea that God wants you to be prosperous. Prosperity gospel. All things work together for good. So whatever happens is going to be good for you. That's not what it says. Not what it says. By the way, who defines what's good? Us or God? Well, we want to. 
right? Don't we? I mean, we really want to. But God defines it. God defines it. There's, we couldn't in a year of CLAs cover all of the ways that bad things, in our view, happened in history that were a huge, a huge benefit to the church. Whether it was men who stepped forward and translated the scripture and were burned at the stake. Or we go all the way back to preached on it in the last year about the, well, actually, no, it was a couple years ago now. See, time flies. About the, the first true pandemic that hit the Roman Empire and what happened to the church as a result of that. This horrible thing where many, many believers died because they're the only ones that ministered to the people that were sick. And what happened? The church grew to its greatest numbers in history as a result. Bad things. But they worked according to God's plan. They worked according to God's plan. So, we don't have a year to cover that. Seems like it takes us forever to cover everything, so we won't go into that one. All right. Romans eight thirty-five to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. Let me read that phrase again. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. Are we killed for our sake, or for God's sake? God's. God's. Because God wants it to happen. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know what that means? Man isn't in control. Because none of those things can separate us from God. Because he's in control. He's in control. Yeah, but what about someone who's possessed? Nope. Can't do it. What about hiding in the belly of the whale? Could that separate us from the... No. Done that. Jonah. Been there. How about someone who goes into outer space? Outside of God's control then? No. No. There is no place. There is no existence that is outside of God's love for you as a believer. So that means that no matter what happens to you, all those things, death or life, angels, principalities, no powers, things present, things that are going to happen, none of those things can override God's decree. That's pretty reassuring, would you say? All right, details of our lives. Huh. Hold on a second. Did I skip one at the end there? Yeah. Like I should have had a little more space in there. Chance occurrences, quote, unquote. See we say that? Chance occurrences. All right, so let's read a few of these. 
1 Kings 22, 28 to 34. And Micaiah said, if thou, if thou return at all in peace, the Lord hath not spoken by me. And he said, Hearken, O people, every one of you. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and enter into the battle. But put thou on thy robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. But the king of Syria commanded his thirty and two captains that had rule over his chariots, saying, Fight neither with small nor great, save only with the king of Israel. And it came to pass, when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, that they said, Surely it is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And it came to pass, when the captains of the chariots perceived that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture, and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. Wherefore he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn thine hand, and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. Okay, so if you do not understand the, the, what happened here, the, they, the king knew that the enemy was going to, they were coming after him. And sure enough, we see here that the king of Syria commands his troops, don't fight anybody, small or great, just the king. That's who I want you to go after. So the king says, I'm sorry, yeah, the king of, of Israel says, put on my robes, and I'm going to put on regular robes, and I will fight amongst the men. Now that's a pretty weak move right there, right? Because basically what he's saying is, you be the target, and I will go out and disguise myself so that I don't get killed. So, sure enough, the Syrians think that he is the king. They follow Jehoshaphat. They follow him. He cries out. They realize this is not the king, and so they withdraw. Then, we don't have a name, a certain man drew a bow and fired an arrow. Now, the picture is he just fired an arrow out in the middle of nowhere. Didn't know he was shooting at But it smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness. That means between his armor. He just drew the bow and shot it. That arrow went between the armor and killed the king of Israel. See, God's plan for what was going to happen was not thwarted. It doesn't matter what the king of Israel did. He was not going to avoid what God's plan was. Does that make sense? God was in control. God was in control. So that was not a chance event, by the way. You understand what I'm saying, right? In other words, was it truly chance that that guy just threw his... Well, wow, what a surprise that this guy just shot an arrow in the air, it hit the king in exactly the right place and killed him. You think it was a surprise to God? No. Job 5.6, Although affliction cometh out not forth of the dust, neither doth trouble spring out of the ground. All, listen to what he says in the beginning. Although affliction cometh not forth of the dust. If it doesn't come out of the earth, where does it come from? Heaven. It's not out of the dust. It doesn't just happen. You think, well, yeah, but I go out there and plant my garden, plant my crops, uh, and weeds, they come, they're trouble. They come right out of the dirt. Who cursed the ground? God. 
God put the weeds there. We don't, we don't think about it that way usually, do we? Job 36, 32. With clouds he covereth the light, and commandeth it not to shine by the cloud that cometh betwixt. Who can block the sun? Who controls the weather? Is it too many carbon emissions from cow flatulence or seaweed in the ocean or man's factories or cars? Do those, are those things controlling the atmosphere and, and the weather? Or is God controlling it? Of course, you see stories about this that contradict that whole narrative time and time again. I just saw one this week. It was about how the latest, latest studies were showing that the, the ozone layer heals itself. It doesn't take man. It just heals itself. And yet, they're also talking about the way to lower temperatures is to start seeding and creating clouds across the country to lower the temperature. Because man wants to be in charge. Proverbs 16.33, the lot, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. You understand what he's saying there? The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Now, without getting too complicated about exactly what a lot is, just think of it like a dice. So you, you throw the dice into your lap, and where it ends up is of the Lord. Not chance. It doesn't just happen the way it happens. It's up to God. Jonah 1.7 And they said everyone to his fellow, Come, let us cast lots that we may know whose cause this evil is upon us. Do you remember when this is? At the very beginning of the book of Jonah. He's on the ship on his way to Tarshish, right? This huge storm comes up. And the sailors say, Who's causing this? They assume, isn't this interesting? We're way past this now. We're so much smarter. Who is causing this storm to come across us? You understand what that, what that means? Just that statement right there that they want to figure this out? First of all, it means that they recognize that God controls the weather. Whether or not they believe that it was our God or whether they believe it was a pagan God, they believed it was out of their hands. Second, they believe that there was a reason that the weather actually acted the way it was. It wasn't just benign. There was a reason. And in their case, they believe the reason was somebody on the ship is to blame. So they cast lots. And the lot fell upon Jonah. Just by chance. It just happened to be the guy who was the cause of the storm. No. There's no chance. We look at it as chance, it's not chance. Does God control where the tornado hits? Did God control where the hail flew this week? Where the damage was done? Yes. God was in control of that. God was in control. There is no chance events that God does not control. We look at them as chance, not God. Details of our lives. Details of our lives. Job 14.5. So now we're moving in, we're further into Job. 14.5. Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed the bounds that he cannot pass. Huh. What does this statement mean? Seeing that his days are determined. Who determined his days? God. 
The number of his months are with thee. Who? God. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. You know what that means? You're going to die when God plans for you to die. There are bounds that you cannot pass. Man's days are numbered, and God knows the number. So be cautious. Be safe. Eat all the right stuff. You're going to die when God plans for you to die. That's it. Now, is it possible? You say, oh, man, I could eat whatever I want to, drive like a maniac, you know, leap off tall buildings, see how that goes. I could do any of that stuff, right? Because God's got a plan, and if he doesn't want me to die, I'm not going to die. Yeah? Don't tempt God. Exactly right. And don't forget, by the way, that he does command us to be good temples. I mean, good temples. Good stewards of our temples. The temple of the Holy Spirit, our bodies. We're commanded to be good stewards. That means you don't leap off a tall building. You don't drive like a maniac. I'm not going to go into the food thing. (laughs) I'm just saying... That, no, we can't tempt God and think, well, we're invincible because he's not going to kill us until we're ready. You're tempting God. You're actually tempting God and saying, oh, you can't kill me. Make a bet. Maybe your death is going to be the example to others because you were stupid. And you said, I think I can beat that train. (laughs) You don't want that to be your last words. (laughs) I think I can beat that train. That would not be good. All right. Psalm 139.16, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which, it, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. This is Psalm 139.16. What is he talking about here? At what point in someone's life is he talking about? This is a huge pro-life verse. That gives you the hint. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. So, unborn. And in thy book all my members were written, which means they didn't exist yet. So before there were even arms and legs, God knew, which in continuance were fashioned, so they came. As I continued to develop, they came. When as yet there was none of them. They didn't exist yet. God knew everything about that human being when it was not even a fetus like we recognize it. Still just some cells. God knows. He already had, he already had it established. This is, how, this is what the hands are going to look like. This is what the feet are going to look like. Already established. Before they existed. Yet, when as yet there was none of them. What's the members? Arms, legs, hands, feet, members. Matthew 10, 29-30. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Hard to get away from God knowing every detail of your life when he has numbered the hairs on your head. He knows how many you lose when you take a shower. He knows how many you lose when you're playing with your grandbaby and they pull your hair. He knows all of that. Knows it. 
he is involved in the details of your life. James 4.15, for that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or do that. We, we don't often say it that way, but we should. See you tomorrow. If the Lord wills. Lord willing, see you tomorrow. Lord willing, see you on Sunday. Lord willing, we'll be at Apple Tree. Lord, whatever it is. That's what we should say. Because it is only with the Lord's will. But the point here is that James is making is really good. He says we ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. You know what he's saying? If it's not the Lord's will, we will not do it. We cannot do it. If it's the Lord's will, then we will do this or do that. That's a pretty broad statement. What isn't covered by do this or do that? Or live. We shall live. What is it covered by that? Is there, is there anything you can think of? No. That's a, that's a pretty broad statement. Pretty broad statement. God's will determines if we shall live or what we'll do. God's will. Again, you can see the pattern here, right? Over and over again. These verses, these are different verses for every one of these categories. Affairs of the nations. Affairs of the nation, 2 Kings 5.1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, and he was a, but he was a leper. Now that's actually the beginning of a very interesting story, which we're not going to go into now. But if you notice in here, it said he's the captain of the host of the king of Syria, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. Who had he delivered to Syria through Naaman? Israel. What? <laughs> God used a Syrian. And his abilities, apparently, to deliver Israel into Syria's hand. You think that Israel thought that was good or bad? But God was in control of the affairs of nations. Psalm 75, 1-7. Unto thee, O God, do we give thanks. Unto thee do we give thanks. For that thy name is near, thy wondrous works declare. When I shall receive the congregation, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all the inhabitants thereof are dissolved. I bear up the pillars of it. Selah. I said unto the fools, deal not foolishly. And to the wicked, lift not up the horn. Lift not up your horn on high. Speak not with a stiff neck. For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. Who makes nations fall? Who brings nations up? God. God. Not the United States of America, by the way. Not the United States. Did the United States... On its own power, defeat Japan in World War II? And make them a nation that was under our authority and reign for years? God did. His plan. Think God was shocked that we came up with an atom bomb? 
Nations fall, nations rise. You've seen it happen during your lifetime. You've seen it happen. Remember the Soviet Union? The Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Russia does. But a lot of the Eastern Bloc nations, Eastern European nations, that were part of the Soviet Union are no longer part of the Soviet Union, and they're independent. Some of them very pro-democratic nations. You've seen that change. There's been governments overthrown. There's been leaderships changed. God controls every one of these. Every one. Look, if God's plan is for Ukraine to be taken over by, this, by the Russians, you cannot stop it. The United States can give whatever armaments we want. We will not stop it. If God's plan is for Ukraine to continue to be an independent nation, it will be an independent nation. It doesn't matter how much strength the Russians have. Do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't. God is in control. God is in control. Well, why is it taking the time that it is before an outcome? Because that's the way God wants it. Why? I'm, I bet you there's millions and maybe billions of reasons. All things that he is working and orchestrating to have his will accomplished. Proverbs 21.31 The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. So you can put all the armor you want in a horse, you can have him trained, you can have him ready to go, but he is not going to keep you safe. Only the Lord will. Only the Lord will. Daniel 2.21, And he changeth the times and the seasons, he removeth kings and setteth up kings, he giveth wisdom unto the wise, and knowledge to them that know understanding. See, Daniel is even writing, saying that this is, a, this. well, actually, this is written in Daniel, but who is it that's actually speaking these words? Anybody know? Pardon me? That verse is Daniel. Yeah, that's right. Does Daniel quote kings in his book? Often. And most of the time that he quotes them, they're actually recognizing God's authority. It's amazing how many times that Daniel sticks to his guns, does what's right, and the king then ends up recognizing that Daniel's God is God. Daniel was not going to get eaten in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not going to get burned up in the furnace. Why? It wasn't part of God's plan. His plan was different. You think Daniel might have had a little apprehension? We certainly don't see fear, at least in the book. You think he might have had apprehension when he got lowered into that pit with the big cats? Look, he did. Do you think? Do we? We don't. I don't know why we don't think about this stuff. I mean, do do we realize that Daniel probably thought he was going to die? He, he could have taken Paul's words right then. I mean, he could have said, you know, I fought the good fight, I finished my raid, I kept the faith. Boom, he gets eaten. Right? Because he did. He stayed faithful. 
even to the penalty of death. So they threw him in there, penalty of death. He probably thought this is it. I did what God wanted me to do. That's okay. Here we go. Probably won't last very long. Probably true. But that's not what happened. Shock. God had more for Daniel. A lot more. It wasn't chance. It wasn't because God didn't know what was going to happen. It was because God did know what was going to happen. And God was controlling what Daniel's influence was going to be on both nations that he was actually a slave under. And his influence on those nations actually directly had impact on Christ. Directly. The rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple were directly as a result of Daniel teaching the law and the concept of the law to the Persians. Israel reestablished in Jerusalem. Was that needed for Christ? Yes, it was. At least to fulfill the prophecy, it was needed. Definitely needed. By the way, Daniel's influence was what his teaching, the men who he taught, the men who learned those concepts, the men that learned all of the different things that Daniel taught them were called the Magi. The Magi, recognized hundreds and hundreds of years as the wisest, most intelligent men that existed. This is why they could travel unharmed through different countries, including into the Roman Empire. Right? Fulfilling a prophecy. Fulfilling a prophecy. Being one more recognition that we can have that Jesus was indeed the Christ. Because of the Magi. If it wasn't for Daniel's work, there would have been no Magi. Why don't we think about those things? That would have not happened if the lions ate him. God was in control. All right, final destruction of the wicked. God's in control of this too. 1 Samuel 2.25 If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who will entreat him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. So, notice what this says. It starts by saying, look, if a man sins against another, a judge will judge him. In other words, if you do something against somebody else, you cause some harm, whatever it is, a judge, a man that God establishes in government, will judge him. But, if a man sins against the Lord... Who will judge him? Who will entreat him? That's what this is saying. You know what it says? The Lord would slay them. It goes on to say, Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. Isn't that interesting? Who are the ones who sin against the Lord? They don't hearken to the voice of their father. (laughs) That's pretty interesting. It's a pattern. Is it universally true? No, it's a pattern. And the pattern is, if you have someone who doesn't hearken to the voice of their father, they're probably not going to have a problem sinning against the Lord. He's their Heavenly Father. Why would they have a problem with that? They don't.
Proverbs 16, 4, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. Let me read it again. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. This is directly saying that God has made the evil for, or the wicked, for the day of evil, for the plans that he has about when it will be evil days, what will be bad days. He raised them up. Hard to get around that God actually was in control of these things and actually caused them to exist when it says it directly. Romans 9.17, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. God directly says that he raised up Pharaoh so that he could show his power. And we know from the story, it wasn't because Pharaoh immediately submitted to God. Right? He continuously rejected God. That's, and God raised him up for that purpose. 1 Peter 2.8 And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Wow. Let me read that again. 1 Peter 2.8. Think about this. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word. So those that stumble at the word, it's a stone of stumbling, it's a rock of offense, because they're being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. God chose them to be disobedient. He chose them. He appointed them to have a problem with the Scripture and to be disobedient. He's in control. Jude 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. So these men who turn the grace of our Lord into lasciviousness and denying our Lord, our only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, they were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men. By the way, the scriptural phrase before of old is before time. That's before time. So these men were ordained before time to be ungodly. That was the plan. All right. All right, now we actually have the scriptures that are footnotes. So all those scriptures I just read were not even in the footnotes. Those are all additional scriptures. So now I'll read the scriptures that are in the footnotes in the confession for this section. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Write that verse down. Because if you want to be able to tell somebody how they can know that God's plan is all that will happen and nothing else will happen, Isaiah 46.10 says it. Declaring the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. God is saying, it's not going to be a surprise. It's not, this isn't going to, we're not going to see how it goes. 
Ephesians 1.11, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. We often focus on the beginning of that verse, which is, In whom we have also obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Just remember the, remember the end part, too. He worketh all things according to the counsel of his own will. He doesn't work some things unto the counsel of his own will. He worketh all things unto the counsel of his own will. Man, do we need to remember that more. Every time something happens that you're disappointed in, every time something happens and you think it's bad, every time something goes the wrong way for you, you remember this. This is God's plan. So who are you questioning? Are you actually saying, God, you should have done it my way? Really? Hebrews 6, 17, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. This is actually referring back to a previous scene in the scripture where we see God confirming by oath what he was going to do. But this verse is pointing out the fact that the immutability of his counsel, in other words, the unmutability is unchanging. His counsel does not change. This is just another verse that says it. We already talked about this when we talked about of oh, God in chapter 2. He's unchanging. He's immutable. He doesn't change his mind. These false gods that other religions hold to, some of them believe God changes his mind. Even pure dispensationalists. Not that people, I've said this many, many times, not that people who are dispensational recognize they're dispensational. Most of them couldn't even explain to you what dispensationalism was, and they probably couldn't even explain to you about what the dispensations actually mean and what the repercussions would be of accepting them as true dispensations. But I can tell you what one of the meanings is. And one of the meanings is, is that God's not immutable. That's one of the huge problems with dispensationalism. God's changed through the dispensations. In each dispensation, he was a different God. This gave rise to the idea that the God of the Old Testament was wrathful. And the God of the New Testament is loving. Changed. He changed. He doesn't change. His word says he doesn't change. It isn't an option. How could he be God if he changed? Because then is truth not truth? Is holiness not holiness? Is righteousness not righteousness? Romans 9, 15, and 18. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom will he will, and whom he will he hardeneth. God chooses who he wants to have mercy, and he can because he's God. He chooses whose heart he's going to harden and who he's not going to have be a believer because he's God. Interesting that we see the quote in Romans from actually the Old Testament. This is not something new. God being in charge wasn't a new concept in the New Testament. Obviously, most of the references I've read so far are actually from the Old Testament. Proverbs, Psalms, etc., right? Job. Jonah, all that you, right? And yet, here we see over and over again in the New Testament too. 
Speaking of Proverbs, 19.21. There are many devices in a man's heart, nevertheless the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. So man has a lot of ideas. That's the devices. Man has a lot of ideas in his heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. So man can come up with all kinds of ideas about what he's going to do, but he's not going to do them unless it's God's will. That's it. Isaiah 14, 24 to 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. That I will break the Assyrian in my land, and upon my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? These are all pretty clear. God is in control. Who's going to change what God's plan is? No one. Psalm 115.3, But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Another good one. Another good one. Our God is in the heavens. He's done whatsoever he pleased. You know what that means? He does whatever he wants. He doesn't have to do it because we think it's a good idea. Psalm 135.6, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven and in earth and in the seas and all the deep places. There isn't a place where God doesn't do how he wants to do, where God's will is not manifested, where he is out of control, no place. Romans 9.19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Hmm. Now this is part of a bigger discussion here in Romans 9, but the point of this verse is specifically, for why doth he find fault for who hath resisted his will? You know what that's really saying? No one can resist God's will. That's the recognition here. It's not going on to make that point because he's just accepted that that's the case. No one can resist God's will. But his question is, how can you find fault in someone if they have to do whatever God wants? Well, that passage goes on to detail that and answer that question. But this verse that begins that discussion, or is partway through that discussion, is pretty clear. Even the bad is in God's will. Daniel 4, 34-35. And at the end of the days, I, ne- here you go, we brought Nebuchadnezzar back in. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my, this is the quote. Remember I said Daniel has quotes, yeah. Same chapter. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes unto heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? This was the most powerful man on earth at this time. And he was powerless against God. Completely powerless. Romans 11.36 For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. For of him and through him and to him are all 
things. Not some things, not spiritual things, not worship time, all things. All things. God is in control. All the categories that this passage in the chapter kind of breaks down, all of these things, God is in control. Things that new believers have a hard time understanding. Some of you are thinking, I'm not a new believer, but I'm still having a hard time understanding this. (laughs) And that's okay. We have to accept things that sometimes are those divine mysteries like we talked about before. Things that we cannot fully comprehend because we are in a failed fleshly body. Our minds are not as complete as they should be. So what must we do in those cases? We must just accept it because God's word says it and shows us this over and over and over again. God controls all. When someone is a sinner, when someone commits sin, it was part of God's plan. Some he raises up to destroy. Never will be saved. They are literally anathema, set aside for destruction by God. By the way, that's the most significant pronouncement that there is in Scripture. Anathema. Marked. So for us, as the church, that's very serious for us to ever have to do that. And we have had to. God gave the keys to heaven to the church. And whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. Do you know what that means? Anathema isn't someone's opinion. Anathema by the church is anathema in heaven. There's nothing more serious than that. I can't think of anything that's more serious than that. No hope of salvation. No hope. Anathema. But even that declaration was God's will. Because it's in his plan. He didn't lose control. There wasn't something surprising. Churches have splits. Churches fall. Pastors resign. Things happen. People go different directions. All a part of his plan. Does that mean it's okay for us to do those bad things? And be a part of those, some of those divisive things and all those things? No. Of course not. Commanded to not be divisive, right? That, look, so maybe none of you guys ever talk about these things. We do. At my house. Right? And Barb can tell you that we say this to each other. Not anathema. We say to each other, it's God's will. And usually it's at the point that you don't want to hear that. Right? Because you're frustrated or you're upset or you're angry or you're disappointed or whatever it is. And then we say to each other, well, this is God's will. And you know, you know what the man, natural man, wants to say back when that's said? He wants to say, 
well, then why are we even trying? Well, then why are we even doing this? Or why are we even doing that? Or why does anybody ever do this? Or whatever, right? Because we're commanded to live as we're to live. That's why. Does God need us to do anything to accomplish his will? He doesn't. But he does command us to obey his will, doesn't he? He commands us of how we should live and how we should treat others. And the beautiful thing is, that's part of his plan. Us doing those things is part of his plan. Us striving to be more like him is part of his plan. That is what we're supposed to be doing. To fulfill his will. Let's not go too much further down that road because, number one, we're out of time. But number two, that's a noodle cooker. So I'll let you that percolate with you for the next week, and then we'll talk some more next week. Let's close in a word of prayer.